You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Hi Church, I hope you're doing okay in this sixth lockdown. I've come down with a bit of a, a cold. I've had the COVID test, so I'm isolating here at home. So I'm coming to you today from my living room to yours. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. So if you've got your Bibles there at home, it'd be a great idea to open them up and have a look at what we're going to be seeing. Well, I wonder if you're comfortable with the idea that God is angry. Have you ever heard the story of the good policeman? So the good policeman is walking along and he sees this little old lady. She's going along with a Zimmer frame Uh, and suddenly a car comes up. It's revving really loudly, as they do in Cranbourne, and three thugs jump out. One comes over and kicks the Zimmer frame from her. She falls to the ground. The second thug comes and he kicks her while she's down. The third one comes and steals all her stuff, and the good policeman is watching all of this. And then they jump up and they hop into their car, And they're just about to screech off when the good policeman comes up to them and says, "Uh, now, before you go, I just want you to know that I I unconditionally love you and, you know, I hope that you do better next time because that wasn't really very, very nice, but I love you. Um, Just wanted to say that. And so the car screeches off and they're laughing. And the good policeman goes on, uh, on his merry way, uh, glad that he remained nice and good and uh, hadn't got angry at all. Now, that's a crazy story, isn't it? But that's really what I think most people feel like God should be like. That he's there and he sees all the injustice of the world, but it, it... seems wrong that God should be angry. Isn't he just meant to be nice? But our Bible reading today actually says God is angry and that he's right to be angry. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. God is utterly good. And he cares about you and he cares about the world that he's made. And so when he does see injustice, when he does see people being hurt, God is angry. When he sees sin in the world, God is angry. See, in the story of the good policeman, the good policeman isn't good at all. He's immoral. He's horrible. And we'd be rightly appalled if we were to see that happen on the street. Now, God isn't like that so-called good policeman. He is, he cares, he loves. And so he's not indifferent when he sees suffering and pain that's caused by sin. When he sees sin, no, because he loves, he is angry with sin. He's angry with ungodliness and wickedness. And actually, this is an expression of his Goodness. Uh, You see that if you have a look at verses 16 and 17 and then see verse 18, uh, the parallels show us that. 
So verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. And then it goes on to verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so God's anger is a revelation of his righteousness or his goodness. You see the parallel there. God cares for his creation. He cares for his people. And so when he sees injustice and a lack of holiness that damages and destroys his good creation, he doesn't just stand by indifferently. He is angry and he acts and he judges. But it's important to remember that his anger is it's not like our anger. You might have had a particularly angry dad or you've had a particularly angry boss or you've just found in the stresses of all this time, the anger has boiled out and blown up in this pressured time. Uh, but God's anger is not like that. Uh, John Stott says... That our anger is irrational and an uncontrollable emotion containing much vanity, animosity, malice and the desire for revenge. It should go without saying that God's anger is absolutely free of such poisonous ingredients. The wrath of God is almost totally different from human anger. And so what's, what's the wrath of God? His wrath is his holy hostility to evil, John Stott writes. His refusal to condone it or to come to terms with it, his judgment upon it. Well, are you uncomfortable with the idea of God being angry? So many of us, I think, prefer a version of God where all anger has actually been airbrushed out. And versions of our Bible where we can just skim easily across any mention of the fact that God is angry. But can you see that if God isn't angry with our sin, if God isn't hostile to evil, if he's unwilling to judge it and bring it to an end, then God doesn't love us at all and he isn't good at all. He can only be truly good if he is utterly opposed to all that is bad. God is angry. His wrath's being revealed and it's directed at all people who act in ungodly and wicked ways, our passage says. All people, we might say. All people. Uh, what about all those people who don't even, even know God? What if they've never heard? Paul, aren't you being a little bit extreme here? What about those who don't know God? Well, our reading actually says that there's no such category of person. Have a look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. He's essentially saying that you can just look around at the world, the amazing planet, the incredible universe in which we live, and see 
enough to know that there is a God. His eternal power and his divine nature, they're invisible, but they can be seen, he says. That's the irony of it. And where can we see it? We see it in the glory of the world. And so in some ways, our scientists should be the ones who see God most clearly. And that is, in fact, uh, the case for some. So uh, there's a, a man uh, named Francis Collin. He's a very eminent scientist. He headed up the Human Genome Project that was mapping the human DNA. And uh, he was originally an atheist, but he came to Christ as an adult, as already a very eminent scientist. Uh, He writes that, As a believer, I see DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language, and the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. He looks at the creation and sees something of God's eternal power and his divine nature. And actually, everyone, this is saying, knows enough, can see enough to know that there is a God. Some research earlier this year from McCrindle Research said that the majority of Australians actually do think there is a God. Uh, They may not know exactly who he is, but they've seen enough to know that there probably is a God. Why? Because you can see there's a God if you look at creation with your eyes open and with a willingness to see. But our passage says we suppress that truth. We turn our eyes away from it. And though people see this, Paul says, verse 21, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. See, people know there's a God, but they don't honour and thank him. Why is that? Paul says because they're engaged in a terrible exchange. Uh, I wonder if you've come across this. Um, uh, it's Kyle McDonald, and in 2005, uh, he set out to exchange a pretty much worthless red paper clip uh, for a house. And he actually succeeds in doing it through a series of trades where he trades or exchanges one thing that's slightly more valuable than the thing that he's got. Uh, he builds his way up in uh, less than two years. Uh, to exchanging something for a house. It's a, it's a pretty amazing exchange. Uh, but Paul says in our passage that we've, we've kind of done the opposite. We've taken something of infinite worth and exchanged it for something that's worthless. Did you see that in our reading? Paul talks repeatedly about a terrible exchange. So verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. And verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So what's the big problem here? Well, you've got to understand that this is actually the root cause of everything else that Paul says in the rest of the chapter The big cause of sin and the big cause of mess in the world is that we've exchanged God, the glory of God, for created things, 
for something less than God. And in Paul's day, that was often literally an image, uh, a God that's a statue. Um, in our day, uh, it's usually something else in creation that we bow to, whether it's uh, a person or a career or money or, or, or just ourselves. The great Reformation theologian John Calvin said uh, that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We're constantly making things that we devote ourselves to, heart, mind, body and soul, that are not God. And as we live for things that are less than God, we actually dim the glory that God has given us. No longer do we believe ourselves to actually be the noble and people that we are created to be, that we have a purpose that's beyond us, that we have an eternal hope and that we're created for something that is infinite. And so we exchange the truth for a lie. It doesn't matter so much how we live. You know, life is brutal and short and so live the way you want to and then we die and it doesn't matter. We exchange the glory of God for a lie and it dims our glory and debases our our sense of self. And so this exchange is played out in the way that we live and it results in a society that says, actually, you know what? We're going to decide what's right and wrong. And this is where uh, it gets really, I guess we're really out of step with our society. Uh, because the first place that Paul turns to is our sexual ethics. Uh, and this is where Christianity is actually decisively out of step with our society because. We do not love God. All of our loves uh, become disordered. And Paul gives uh, one example. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with a passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons to do penalty for their error well as we approach this i'm very mindful that this isn't just an idea on a page we're actually talking about people that perhaps we know and that we love maybe friends uh, maybe family members i expect actually in a parish the size of ours that there are people in our congregations who are same-sex attracted and so we need to talk about this uh, with care and with grace There's so much to say on this topic that I can't really address in the short amount of time that I have to to go through this passage. One guy who's really good on this is a guy by the name of Sam Albury. He's a writer, he's a theologian, he's an Anglican minister. He's also same-sex attracted. But he goes through what the Bible says about it really uh, biblically faithfully and really helpfully. We're going to have copies of his book available for you to borrow uh, from the church once church is open again. And I'm going to send out an email during the week. If you're not a reader and you'd rather just hear him and give a a sermon, a talk on it, 
you can click on the link and explore that topic much, much more and in more detail than I'm able to do now. I'm also really happy to have a conversation with anyone who'd like to uh, about this. If you'd like to talk more, please do come and talk to me. But in short, the biblical position, the traditional position of Christianity down through the ages is that what Jesus himself teaches and therefore is the most loving thing that we can affirm to anyone is that the proper expression of sexual relationships is in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman for life. Now, some people look at verse 26 and they say, actually, what they're talking about there is heterosexuals having homosexual sex. That's why Paul calls it unnatural. And so I was not talking about what we're talking about uh, in these discussions that our society has been having. But natural here doesn't mean naturally occurring. It means God it means as God created things to be. We, we live in a fallen world where this world is not as God created things to be. And so any sex outside of marriage, whether it's heterosexual, uh, premarital sex or adultery or homosexual sex is unnatural by that definition. It's not that the desires aren't naturally arising. Actually, every single person on this planet has naturally arising desires that aren't in conformity with God's ways. Paul's just giving one example. And see, that's actually really the point of the rest of the chapter. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. He's talking about everyone who's exchanged the truth of God for a lie Everyone, he gave them up to a debased mind and things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You could not get a more damning list See, what Paul's talking about here is uh, the people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, which at some point or another, to some degree or another, is actually all of us. Uh, So I hope you don't get distracted by the mention of homosexuality from seeing that all of us find us ourselves at some point or another in the latter half of Romans chapter 1. Paul later says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know it's right for the wrath of God to be revealed, not just on whatever group we want to point at out there, but on ourselves. Because we're all sinners. In fact, you will never understand the gospel. You will never really get why the gospel, the good news is so good until you've owned yourself as someone who has fallen short of the glory of God and who rightly should be judged. And actually, that's what God does. God's judgment isn't 
just in the future. So often in the Bible, you look at it and there's a day that stands in the future when God will judge the world. And that's that's true. But it's he also uh, there are expressions of his judgment in the here and now. Three times in the passage, we hear the terrible judgment of God in the words and he gave them up. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. See, when we reject God and no longer say thy will be done in our lives, God responds by giving us what we want. In effect, he says to us, okay, then thy will be done. And there's a terrible judgment of God in this. See, in God's goodness and in his mercy, God is restraining uh, things from getting as bad as they could. The world would be an absolutely dreadful place if, if God didn't do that. But there comes a point where God gives us up to the things that we in our fallen nature and in our fallen heart and darkened minds want. And those things destroy us. Well, that's actually where chapter one ends. But uh, that would be a terrible place to leave things uh, now and particularly after the week I think we've all had. Uh, it's where we get up to in Paul's argument, but of course it's, it's not the whole story. See, this is not the only terrible exchange that we find in the Bible and not the only giving up. In the book of 1 Timothy, we find another exchange. And we find judgment, the judgment of God falling on Christ and our unrighteousness exchanged for his righteousness, our shame taken and his glory given to us again. 1 Timothy 3.18 For Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave up his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Sin is terrible. Our God's wrath is rightly revealed against it. But in his grace, Jesus stood in my place. He stood in your place. If you love Jesus and you follow him. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Would you show us those areas of our hearts where we still cling to created things rather than to you, our creator? Uh, Heavenly Father, you're rightly angry with our sin and were it not for your grace and mercy, none of us could stand. And so would you open our hearts and minds to see this, not so that we'll be crushed, but so that we might cling all the more to Jesus Christ, ever thankful, ever praising you for your grace and mercy through him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.